0: The project. Tim from We're going to talk about evolution and if we use an argument against God. Tim, what's up, man? How's it going?
1: It's good, man. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Let's do it.
2: I'm super
0: pumped this. So we're gonna do a short video from
2: on why the video is called Why Evolution is Strong Evidence Against God. I believe is the name of the video. And or why evolution is evidence against God. And yeah, it's gonna be a lot of fun. So, Joe's gonna kind of lay out like a more standard evolutionary argument from evil, and we're just gonna re- rebut it and have fun with it. So, Tim, do you have anything you wanna say before we get rolling?
1: Yeah. Um, this is actually a really good, uh, short, really sh- good short clip to kind of be able to talk about everything. Um, and just wanna like put a disclaimer. Like, the only thing that really my goal with this is to not like, give like a comprehensive theistic response. Like there's nothing you could say afterwards, after we're done here, you know, we win type of thing, but just kind of like add a theistic perspective here. And I think I have uh, someone somewhat more balanced, moderate nuanced perspective when it comes to this. And uh, just like shout out to Joe, we love Joe and everything he does and everything like that. Um, And, uh, and, This is just all good and fun philosophy. So, Mm -hmm.
2: yeah, lots of love for Joe. A little sad that he's an Arsenal fan, but I mean, they didn't get to have any like European matches this weekend, like the Europa League was today. So, I have to like put that jab in there as a Chelsea fan, and no one else probably knows what I'm talking about. So, yeah. Um, But yeah, lots of love to Joe. Great guy and great stuff here uh, we're thinking about. So, hopefully, we can just like further dialogue with this video. So, you ready to dive into it, Tim? Let's do it. All righty, here we go. And the full video is linked down below, and you can look at the full interview there. It's a great
0: conversation. It's it's extremely surprising under theism that a fully providential, omnibenevolent God would orchestrate this kind of bloodbath as the very means or mechanism by which creation is brought about, you know, like uh, humans and other sorts of sentient beings are brought about. like what kind of process? Anyway, it's it's just very surprising to me. I'm not saying it's incompatible, you know, like mm-hmm. those kind of inconsistency arguments are really hard to defend. Okay. So
2: this is just to frame the context. This was an interview you did with Dustin, the non-alchemist, I believe his name is. And first Dustin asked Joe, like, what's the strongest argument for theism, And then now he asked Joe, like, what's the strongest argument for atheism? And this is kind of what Joe says. And he lays out the argument. So Tim, I'll leave it to you to start off. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah. Um, how about you and I, we just kind of give our initial like our initial thoughts and then we can kind of um, we can kind of then kind of like, I guess, lay everything out. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think it was really interesting. Um, uh, yeah. So he's talking about, oh, man, there's just so much to mm-hmm. to to unpack so many yeah. nuances that just flood my mind. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the first thing he said was, um, you know, this whole thing is just very, very surprising um, mm-hmm. on theism. Um, and so, of course, that's that's just basically the first part. Um, and um, I, I, in the way that he's saying it, he's saying that, you know, prima facie, when you're looking at the nature of being being posited on theism, and then you look at the data of evolution and, and everything that goes on, Um, There are some particular facts about it um, that seem to be very well, not that expected, not predicted, surprising on theism, Mm -hmm. given um, the nature of evolution and things that go on uh, within the biosphere. Um, So that's my first take of it. Uh, What's yours?
2: Yeah. So I appreciate this kind of argument. Like, Joe's not coming out here and saying well like evolution is just flatly like um contradicts like theism it's just like saying like broadly like if we like look at the world and like what we'd expect if like god exists at least to joe's lights um and like to many people would make this argument like evolution is not what we'd expect um and like for me like i'm personally kind of like agnostic about evolution but i think like if if you believe in an earth that isn't six thousand years old like you're gonna have to deal with this problem of animal suffering for millions of years regardless of what your views are on evolution and that's to me that's like kind of the gist of what's going on here is like this is super surprising under theism and i don't think Joe yeah. would say it's expected under naturalism like because you know but it's like a lot more likely on like naturalism or atheism that you'd have this evolutionary process than it is on theism and i think that's kind of like the heart of the mm-hmm. argument
1: and, and and i think what's 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 uh good to point out here is that when we say that something isn't su- is is surprising on a hypothesis What we're saying is that, like he said, this is not an incompatibility argument, but rather theists can have answers to try to reconcile this data. But um, it is just something prima facie surprising, given the hypothesis of theism, given these things. And this is not at all like any sense. It makes renders theism implausible. But rather, this is some data that the naturalist, the atheist, whoever is presenting their case, uh, can mm-hmm. use. They can bring out this data, they can bring out the data evolution, point to these different things and these different aspects, and they can say, yeah, um, given the theory that I'm putting forth, um, this is uh, not as surprising. And so given the facts about evolution and how things occur and how things proceed, uh, it's not as surprising. And so all it really does is it lowers our confidence in the hypothesis of theism because mm-hmm. it's how we think about evidence, right? It's all about evidence um, and looking at, you know, the evidence f- for the prospective theories. This is the posterior probability you can say on the mm-hmm. theories that when you're comparing them and you're doing a rival hypothesis comparison, um, Basically, you can you can look at these set of facts and you can go, OK, yeah, this set of fact right here, like this this particular fact right here, like this causes our confidence in this hypothesis to go down. If you do that, well, what happens is its rival competitor will just naturally raise up a bit. Now, how mm-hmm. much it's raised up is the real question. And simply here, like you were saying, Zach, like we're not like Natural isn't saying that. Oh, yeah. Like this is. The most expected thing on naturalism. So it's like a probability of one, you get mm-hmm. the data of evolution, but it's not as unlikely as on theism. Mm-hmm. And so that is just how we would lay those things up.
2: Yeah, and I think um, talking about like you're going to get into more of the science things, and we'll get into some more philosophical defenses and whatnot. Um, I think like we we're going to both agree that there's certain facts about evolution that aren't brought up in this little clip that uh, are going to raise the probability that would be expected on theism, but not on naturalism, which is where a lot of the rebutting is going to be in this video. So do you want to play the next clip, Tim? Or do you want to talk about that now? Like I'm open to what you want to do.
1: Uh, let's play the next clip and then let's go from there.
2: Okay, sounds good. Here's the next clip, and we're. I think this is where we get a nice little Swinburne impersonation. So shout out to Joe for that.
0: Oh yeah. Um, but on both sides, whether for or against God's existence, um, but it does seem just extremely surprising. These are non. These are these are moral, mere moral patients, right? They're not moral agents, uh, and so it doesn't seem as though a pig would be like oh yeah. yeah so i just experienced this suffering over here and so <laughs> and it's so like and so i'm going to develop my character in such a way yes. you know it's like no uh, the, the pig the pig is just it's a pig and so it just it just, it just suffers yes. um so anyway it, it's just it, it's rough
1: it's rough when you think about that and just yeah. okay uh lots of yeah. stuff here. So, Tim, what what do you think? here you know it's just a pig a pig is a pig yeah exactly so this i mean this is really interesting so i mean we really got to get into when we are thinking about the i mean the title is called why evolution isn't is evidence against god is that what it says yeah it's why evolution is evidence against god right so if you want to say that evolution is actually evidence against god then what we have to do is we have to step back and we have to look at the entire data of the 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 entire fact of evolution Mm -hmm. because evolution there's a lot going on here Mm -hmm. and what is the naive approach to this and what i mean by naive is um, once you start to look at it any further you're going to start to see that this falls apart the naive approach is that well or the naive perspective is that well evolution is just this constant rough like bloody like competition between animals to get by and survive like the hunger oh, games basically or dying. what i said like the hunger games like it's just hungry exactly. bloodbath and um and this has been going and animals have been uh in anguish and languishing for millions and millions and millions multi-billion years uh mm-hmm. of of their existence um and and so the thing is is that um, there is some truth to it, but there's a whole lot of not a truth to it, um, mm-hmm. and so this is kind of like what where we can kind of couch and park ourselves real quick. So when we look at the entire data evolution, like we should ask, like, well, first, like, what is evolution? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it? And, and I have a what I think is a decent uh, bare formulation of um, pretty bare bones formulation of really what, what evolution actually is. And so this is how I see, we look at evolution and we look at its core fundamental components. This is what evolution is. It is a complex dynamical system where macro level stable reproducible metabolizing structures can can proliferate and enhance themselves over time. I'll say that again. It is a complex dynamical system where macro-level, stable, reproducible, metabolizing structures can proliferate and enhance themselves over time." Now, none, nothing in that definition at all involves death, suffering, anguishing, languishing, um, nothing like that. Uh, disease, uh, um, predation, parasites, nothing like that. Um, that is, this is what evolution is. Um, and because evolution is, a, is an unfolding process. So when we look at that, well, in that bare bones formulation of evolution, um, well, it just doesn't mention any of these uh, suffering things. And the reason why that is important to note is that if you're going to say evolution is evidence against theism, well, first, just the, off right off the bat, evolution as formulated itself is not um in any tension here uh this right here is not causing us to to look at the nature of the being being posited on theism i'm thinking about like a perfect being theism um and you look at this definition and these two propositions um they there really is no nothing there that causes you to go oh, okay yeah it's very unsurprising given the nature of god uh, yeah. As a perfectly loving, uh, f- uh, existing, an existent. So that is the first part there, um, mm. and the reason why another reason why this is important is that when you look at, basically the four components that that drive evolution, um, it's variation, selection, inheritance, and time. And so really we have a, we have survival and reproduction happening. Uh, And when you have that happening, you're having evolution. So at its its most fundamental level, um, there is nothing about suffering that's happening. Now, where the suffering comes in is the suffering comes in and the the different evolutionary evils come in is is because this evolution is a sophisticated interplay between law and chance. Mm -hmm. You have the laws, you have the boundary conditions, of the universe, of the cosmos, and because of these boundary conditions, these parameters of physics, um, these physical chemical laws that ultimately allow, well, biological, biologic information, and then complex biological structures to emerge, all the way down from the uni, from unicellular. Uh, biological entities to biological entities like ourselves, um, what you have is a sophisticated play between that those laws involved and then the chances that play out, the contingent facts and features about the environment um, and about other organisms and how they interact with their ecological niches in the entire biosphere. So when those things happen, well, it, then it what it does is it presents a high probability that there will be a type of suffering, a kind of suffering. Now, you can have evolution without having complex, let's say, like vertebrates who can uh, feel a good sense of pain, because this is what it has to do with pain, who can have ne- a negative mental life. Mm -hmm. You have a a, a negative physical life. You can feel physical pains, but also mental pains as well. And you need not, evolution need not necessarily always arrive at those kinds of creatures. And if you are um, very contingent about the way that evolution works, well then, you know, if you do Stephen Jay Gould's uh, thought experiment after you rewind the tape evolution back to zero and start over again that you would get some stuff nothing like we have today and mm-hmm. so you might not even get um uh the same conditions that would produce creatures with uh the kinds of nervous systems and, and kind of pain receptors and things of that sort and so that's just just that's just to say that so when we're looking at the data evolution we have to look at all aspects so this is kind of also a uh, also kind of a back uh, a double-sided response as well to the idea of teleological evils, and the idea is that teleological evils that the is the idea that the entire design plan of how nature unfolds, and how evolution unfolds, um, uh, is innately associated with suffering. Isn't it conjoined to suffering. And so the entire design plan itself brings forth suffering. And they say that's a problem on theism. Um, Why would God create a system that will necessarily bring about suffering? So it goes back to what I said earlier, which is, well, there's a high probability that suffering will be brought about given the interplay between law and chance. Um, That over evolutionary time, as you play these things out, um, you will... Uh, uh, there are certain things that will happen, certain states of affairs that will occur, and some of them will be good, what we call good states of affairs, and you'll get a lot of bad, negative states of affairs, and these are the things that we would consider evils and sufferings. So I want to, I want to put that to the side because we'll get to that um, part. But also, we we, we ha- we're not done looking at the whole entire data, uh, important part of the data evolution. So we have to remember that. Um, Evolution, uh, is, is so first we've talked about the sophisticated law and chance, and uh, it is well-documented and there is a large body of literature on the fact that, well, there are actually physical chemical constraints on evolution itself and what we call evolvability. The degree in which organisms evolve, um, how they evolve and things of that sort, there are constraints. Um, Via the laws themselves. And so there's a good paper called um, evolution was chemically constrained. And I want to read some of the abstract here to Mm -hmm. get you a, a, a picture here, because what we will start to see is that actually the data evolution actually has a lot of aspects to it that are very consonant with the hypothesis of theism yeah can i just interrupt as you pull up this abstract him like
2: the way i look at this and like the way we're approaching this is like there's two kind of points here when we're approaching this problem of like evolution or like the question of it and one is like the scientific data um we're looking at like this paper or like the nature of convergence we're talking to a little bit where there's these certain facts about evolution that seem like surprising on like atheism or naturalism but not on theism so like that's one part and the second part is talking about like the actual like suffering of these like animals and it's like why they'd potentially, like, I would allow these things or, like, have, like, a good purpose for these. That's, to me, like, when we're right for the rest of this video, like, that's the two, like, kind of, like, I don't have a good word for it. Two points we're trying to establish here. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Good, 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 good. Yeah. So, yeah. So, on this paper, it's called Evolution Was Chemically Constrained, and it says in the abstract that The objective of this paper is to present a system's view of of the major features of biological evolution based upon changes in internal chemistry and uses of cellular space, both of which it will be stated were dependent upon on the changing chemical environment. The account concerns major developments from prokaryotes, eukaryotes, to multicellular organisms, to animals with nervous systems and a brain, and finally human beings and their uses of chemical elements in space outside themselves. It will be stated that the changes were an inevitable progression and were not just due to blind chance. So that random searching by a coded system to give species had a fixed overall route. The chemical sequence is from a reducing to ever increasingly oxidizing environment while organisms retained reduced chemicals. This process was furthered recently by human beings who have also increased the range of reduced products trapped on earth in novel forms. All the developments are, are brought about from the nature of the chemicals which organisms accumulate using the environment and its changes. And then it says here that, um, let's see, where is it? Um, Cause this is a large abstract um might mm-hmm. be clear um it must so at the end of the where is the tunneling portion one second
2: no good. get a, what i do i'll add while you pull this up tim is like mm-hmm. something to talk about like when we're thinking about this is like animals aren't just like more like obsolete and i'm not saying like joe like infers this but i'm just saying like this is something important to consider like just because an animal can't like Um, like in a serious, like self-conscious way, like a human can like reflect on their suffering and like appreciate it for good. doesn't mean that like animal suffering isn't just like worthless. (laughs) Um, So like Swinburne in the existence of God has a good quote where he talks about this. He says that like animals can do many of the things that we saw in this chapter. um, And it is good that they should be able to preserve themselves and their offspring and perhaps others of their species also from harm. When the gazelle sees other gazelles killed by tigers, it gives it knowledge of how to use its power for good ends for its own benefit and that of its offspring. Escaping the tigers and helping its off-screen to escape them. So I just bring up this one coat to say that, like, just because an animal can't like do the deep work that we can of like philosophy and stuff yeah, like that this, doesn't mean point. that like animal uh, suffering um is, is meaningless. So and they can do good things. But you have your quote put up, now, Tim?
1: Yeah. So um, it's not letting me actually get into the actual paper itself, but the part that I was trying to find was um, um, uh, is that it talks about how Basically, evolution was in a tunnel of sorts. Um, and that's how it was constrained. And there was really one way in which um, the the process was going to unfold, the route it was actually going to unfold down. And so as I mentioned earlier in the abstract uh, a little bit earlier ago, um, that, uh, you know, the the organisms that we observe, the biological entities that we observe today are not due to uh just simply just a process of blind chance. Um, It is directly constrained due to the physical chemical laws uh, of the natural laws of the universe Mm -hmm. itself and the boundary conditions. And that is inextricably inextricably linked to what the phenomena we call fine tuning is. Mm -hmm. And when I refer to fine tuning, I'm simply talking about how physicists refer to fine tuning, which is that the, for life to evolve anywhere, complex, stable, reproducible structures that are intelligent and are able to make moral decisions, uh, that kind, that type of life, for that to evolve anywhere in the universe, um, there are very stringent and not lax conditions given by the parameters of physics, and that there are these life-permitting conditions that are necessary uh, for the evolution, of life and so that's all i mean when i talk about fine fine tuning is that there are a narrow set of of life permitting parameters and we know this because the standard model of particle physics gives us this information the standard model of particle physics is the best model we have currently um we are still looking for a final theorem or fun- fundamental theory of of physics but the standard model is what we have now and the standard model gives us the set of constants with the equations and the numbers and the mathematics. And theoretical physicists are able to, uh, within the standard model, see, okay, if we do these deviations and these variations um, within the standard model, without violating the standard model, we can see what kind of universes will, what they'll be like. And uh, the conclusion is that, well, not, not all physicists agree that the universe is finely tuned, right? Uh, They have their own kind of explanations, but the fine tuning phenomena refers to the the idea that, well, you can't just get you can't just there are necessary conditions for life. You can't just get it. Um, There are these the standard model. That's what the standard model tells us. And so if that's true in conjunction with things I've said previously, uh, there is this high degree of teleology when it comes to just getting evolution itself. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk uh, about conver- oh, sorry, I didn't
2: mean to say, talk about convergence in evolution
1: because I think that's a very interesting kind of fact here. Yeah, and so that that can lead us to another data point, which is. Um, well, let me take a look at my notes real quick. Um, yeah, you're good. yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we can we can talk about evo- uh, convergence. I can pop that into there. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you've been following along with me up to this point, um, the thing to note is that we're trying to put evolution into its perspective. Mm-hmm. and that really um you have to have this high degree of teleology for evolution to even get off the ground to even get going um and it's this very sophisticated complex process and so as that process continues well there's also some other really interesting datum as well and the reason why i bring up the teleology is that well teleology is very much a uh something that is supremely consonant with theism mm-hmm. uh, As we know, Swinburne, he argues that there is a very high uh, probability um, that God would create an orderly complex universe. Um, God is driven by value. God has these value-generating dispositions. That's how theism explains anything um, via God's value-generating dispositions. And that there is a high probability that God will will, uh, create a orderly complex universe in the same way. Uh, There is so much order in the evolutionary processes and mechanisms themselves, uh, which are inextricably linked to the actual laws of physics. So it is very well, sits very well with theism. And that is very not surprising on theism. But if we were to look at naturalism, which its foundations, because I... Looking at the foundations is what we're really looking at here. The difference between theism and naturalism is your foundations. If you look at the foundations of naturalism or whatever hypothesis you have for atheism, um, it is ultimately going to be an impersonal, indifferent foundation. Now, it being impersonal and indifferent, mindless, fundamentally, uh, it is very surprising you would get uh, orderly complex universe and it's very surprising that you would get um the, the 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 amount of teleology in order we see in the actual evolutionary process itself and so it's interesting now that we now that we look at it we start to see which data sit where uh, and this is why i said we need to keep track of the nuances and so zach brought up something interesting about Uh, something called biological convergence or evolutionary convergence. And there's this book by um, Simon Conway Morris called the deep structure of biology. And it says, um, is convergence sufficiently ubiquitous to give it a directional signal and put simply biological convergence is when, so think about the biological divergence. When we talk about how speciation occurs, um, you will have an ancestral organism or ancestral pair and as the populations diverge from one another um, and the variation takes place, organisms will diverge from their ancestral pair and they will start to acquire traits and phenotypes, morphologies and structures that are divergent from uh, their ancestral pair. That they, um, So uh, examples abound, right? Um, if you think about Luca, the last universal common ancestor, the last universal common ancestor is the um, is the is the uh, cellular type that we're looking for that basically uh, at the inception of the origin of life got the ball rolling, which, you know, now we have eukaryotes, prokaryotes, archaea, and and different things. Um, so, yeah, so that's um, but anyway, so. Convergence is the flip side of that, which is, it is where organisms evolve independently of one another. So different populations in different environments evolve very similar traits. Mm. And it's not that they look just, they simply look similar, uh, but they have like very like anatomically and like, and and you look at their homology, like, like aligns very well, very similar structures. And so there's many examples. That abound on this um we see examples um in, uh the uh in african elephants um versus other elephants um there was one time even uh, an america cheetah american cheetah and then wherever um and then cheetahs that we're we are used to today um uh in hummingbirds and things and so when independent lineages evolve the same traits. That's called convergence. But the interesting thing about it is that this happens all the time.
0: Mm-hmm. There are
1: so many examples of this convergence. And so the reason why I say, well, does this give us a directional signal? Which is, well, evolution seems to be fine-tuned or almost constrained to a point to, to produce, given the environmental stressors. Because environmental stressors are gonna be different because they are completely different environments in completely different evolutionary time scales evolving the same traits. And so it seems that evolution is is almost driven fundamentally to produce these similar structures, um, which is just another more evidence for the teleological aspect of evolution in and of itself. Um, Hmm. And so I want to touch on one more thing, and then we can move on to the next part, which is um, the basic units that drive all life itself are cells. And there is a large body of literature called cellular, uh, decision-making that were, that talks about cellular cognition. And I have a book here, um, called wetware, a computer in every living cell. And it documents how, uh, cells are actually able to make, actually exhibit cognitive abilities. Now, I'm not saying that cells are conscious like you and I, and we, and they can make, you know, reflect on the existential things of life, but cells are, are like almost like quantum engines, computing machines, which are able to, and they're not dumb, they are able to um, cooperate with one another uh, and to come up with, to form complex cellular ecologies, to come up with solutions to protect the organism. And this is what happens uh, when variation occurs. External stimuli get sensed, cells get together, and they tap into their innate biochemical functions to produce a result. So you have cellular cognition. even. And again, these are facts that sit very well with theism. This is not very uh, surprising on theism. This is something that uh, would raise our confidence in theism, given the considerations I made uh, previously. And so there's a lot of literature on that um, and it's important to note because the, uh, the evolution of metazoans and human beings were metazoans. We are deuterobio, uh, uh, bilateria. I think that's what it is. Um, cause we have a mouth and an anus, um, is so where that sect of, uh, bilaterians, uh, metazoans are the result of, of a competition between unicellular and, uh, e- uh eukaryotes and prokaryotes at one point in time, where, um, uh, where unicellular eukaryotes had to um, evolve and adapt, uh, which resulted in cooperativity among the cells. And this uh, is what gave rise to the um, epoch of uh, these formations of these complex cellular ecologies, which ultimately resulted in the evolution of metazoans. So um, those considerations are important. And so these are the facts the nuances we need to keep track of and so this is the relevant science that we have to keep track of when we talk about evolution because evolution is not only just something that a phenomenon that happens in nature it is something that we studied by science we we have to look at the theory and we have to look at those aspects too so zach anything else you want to say no i think you did a really good job of summing it up and like you've combed the depths
2: um of like evolutionary biology and stuff and i haven't like i think about this more from like a philosophical lens but i think just to sum things up like when we we're talking about like if like um, the atheist or Joe or someone wants to make the argument that like evolution is like evidence against God or like really strong evidence against God. They also have to consider like um if the theist is going to accept evolution, you have to consider like all the different facets of evolution which seem really surprising on atheism, but not on theism like um conversions or like the, the foundational structure of evolution or like the cellular level, like things like this. Um So, yeah, I mean, just summing it up. That's kind of my thoughts on this. So I appreciate that, Tim. Mm-hmm. Nice. Okay, we'll get into this next clip, and we're going to get into a little bit more of the philosophical side of things, which I'm sure is what people are probably more expecting, but laying the scientific groundwork is super important because it provides, at least in my mind, a pretty strong case
0: for theism through evolution. Just yes. the, the profound, like, think of how protracted it is, like, hundreds of millions of years of these non-human animal suffering. Like, this is the very means by which a providential God orchestrated it. It's just, it's really surprising to my mind on the- Okay, so we have the here... Obviously, like we've
2: talked about like laying down the groundwork of like the scientific thing where like yeah uh, it looks like there's maybe these scientific facts around evolution that um maybe actually be more surprising on atheism than theism. But then we have like the actual like problem of like the suffering and the animal suffering, which is a very important thing and obviously like moves Joe and moves lots of people. And I totally see that. So I don't know where you want to take this, Tim.
1: Yeah, so so there are different ways um that you can cash this out. Um you have uh Quentin Smith with kind of a different one, which has to refer to the uh like what he calls evil natural laws and then you have on philippe Leon's website uh, ex-apologists his blog uh in his hundred or so ar- i think hundred arguments for atheism he has um a section on teleological evils and i covered and i mentioned teleological evils previously um and it's just the facts about the anguish and languishing of organisms over millions of years uh, through the evolutionary process and that is essential to the process um And then you have uh, uh, just simply the evolutionary evils that occur, Mm -hmm. the predation, um, uh, the predator-prey relationships, uh, parasitism, things of that sort. Mm -hmm. So that is what uh, the naturalist could say, okay, I can can see how all this stuff fits very well with theism over here. But then this is the stuff that fits very well with us, and this is disconfirmation against theism. Now, when Mm -hmm. I say disconfirmation, Disconfirmation is um, is an evidentiary term. Uh, if some data or datum disconfirms a hypothesis, that is evidence against a hypothesis and it renders it less probable. And so what they're saying is that this renders it less probable. This gets into two things. It gets into one, it gets into anomalies and how anomalies relate to theories. And two, it gets into theodicy so I'll go over anomalies so Doherty and Proust have this great paper called um, the problem of evil as a as anomaly and what they say is that for any theory out there bad theory good theory scientific theory because uh, theism is a is um, is a theory um is relevantly similar to a scientific theory. It's an overall narrative model uh, that is constructed to make sense of a specific body of facts. Um, And the reason why anomaly is relevant here is that in theories, you will run into anomalies, which is there are evidences or there are facts that are very surprising. And, uh, on these theories. Uh, they are even seen as counter instances of theories. Um, so basically what happens is, uh, yeah, go ahead, and take it. Um, basically what happens is on these theories, uh, what you have going on is what can be considered a spectrum of anomaly. And in the spectrum, you have weak anomaly to very strong anomaly. And this is where you can get from where you will start to see, okay, does it disconfirm or does it not disconfirm? So this is what they call in the paper anomaly mongering, which is that if you are simply going to say, well, hey, this is just seems so surprising on theism. Um, You know, what do we do? You know, it doesn't seem reconcilable on theism. Uh, That is simply anomaly mongering. It is not demonstrating that this is actually a disconfirmation or evidence against theism or whatever theory it is simply basically showing you the anomaly in the counter instance and saying you know it seems like your theory can't deal with this um and this is what intelligent design theorists and creationists do with evolution all the time they will pick out very specific points along the way and they will say hey look Bacterial flagellum, hey, look, Cambrian explosion, right? Hey, look, you need inf- problem of macroevolution, right? And that's anomaly mongering. They're going, evolution can't make sense of this, therefore, ID theory is better. Because it, ca- it can make sense of this type of thing, supposedly is what they say. Um, not at all an ID theorist, um, like completely with evolution here, just in case anybody has that weird skepticism going on. Um, So the same way in which evolutionary biologists answer the criticisms of intelligent design theorists, what they're doing is they are addressing their anomalies. Evolution is able to give a response to their anomalies, what we consider counter instances of the theory, something that is not directly predicted on the theory or very much expected. And they are able to remain within their epistemic rights by holding on to their theory in the, in the fact in the face of counter instances and anomalies. And so basically what happens here is we need to to basically parse out is the datum of evolutionary evils theological evils is that simply just an anomaly or is it such a strong anomaly that's disconfirmation? And so the way that you would cash it out here is um by looking at the virtue specifically Um, what you can call durability or explanatory flexibility. And basically, if a theory is durable or explanatorily flexible, it is able to respond to evidence. That the theoretical content of the theory is so, that is able to respond to evidence, is able to deal with the problem of old evidence, is able to accommodate evidence in a way that is non-ad hoc, and plausible giving its theoretical resources. And this is what they do in evolution, which is they give responses that are consistent and consonant with the theory of evolution. And there are non ad hoc responses and answers to these anomaly mongering uh, situations by creationists. And so in the same way, if theism is flexible enough to be able to account for new evidence and be able to accommodate instances then basically um ignore my dad back there um basically um then the theists are within their epistemic rights to uh, maintain that actually this is not disconfirmation of theism um so theism is going to have its particular set of predictions and then it's going to be able to explain everything that is uh, let's say moderately probable or more so probable than what its rival competitor is. And so then that's what gets us into theodicy. Theodicies are then those answers to the counter instances. And a successful theodicy is one that is non-ad hoc and plausible given the theory. That this is something that just is either a hidden consequence of your theory. It's an answer that's a hidden consequence, a narrative that's a hidden consequence of your theory. Or it is something um, that uh, is able to uh, really show that your theory actually does exhibit this flexibility. Now, theories that are too flexible um, are just unfalsifiable. They will always be able to account for data. So we want theories that are uh, have a healthy degree of flexibility, and that's what we see in evolution. So I, I, so the way that theists answer uh, count for their anomalies is the same way that evolution counts for it. So I know that's a lot right up front. Mm-hmm. and so we can we can look at the suffering that way. Now I want to get. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no I, I was. You, you go. Okay. So, um, basically, um, what's going on here is we have to look at on naturalism. Okay, its prima facie seems more probable on naturalism than theism of evolutionary evils. But ultima facie, is that true? Now, my. The thing to take into account is evolution is what we call a general fact. And theism and naturalism are grand theories. And so these large scale theories are specifically able to take into account a specific set of facts. Sorry, a a set of facts that is um, general. Right. So consciousness, morality, um, biology, et cetera, and so forth. And since they are these grand theories, these ultimate theories, these largest scale theories you could possibly have, um, there are specific things that we can look at that just they cannot touch. For example, neither theism nor naturalism predict that there would be that there would exist an electron, right? Neither theism nor naturalism exist uh predict um that you and I would be having this conversation right now. Like, like there are very specific facts about reality that theism and naturalism just cannot account for. In the same way, an elk galloping near a cliff and falls off the side of the cliff on accident is a very specific fact. And that, if you we were to say, well, how does theism account for that specific fact? Well, it doesn't. Not because it can't, but because that is too specific of a fact. Now, this is Paul what Paul Draper does in his Abductive Atheology. And, and he has his own evolutionary evils argument, which is in Paul Draper's abductive A Theology, he says that theists have their general facts. But then once you start to look at the specific facts, and he calls these the specific facts of naturalism, you start to see how actually there's lots of evidence against theism. Now, the problem here is he will say, if we look at something like an orderly complex universe and Swinburne says that that's evidence for theism. Um, but then we look at the fact that the universe uh is only orderly and complex because it starts with very few field states um, and very simple equations and then moves towards as entropy increases. Um, well, then that's actually not all that evidence for theism. Um, that is uh, very much uh, uh, unsurprising given naturalism, uh, given those physical facts and given something like maybe like a source physicalism where, uh, where the physical is ontologically prior to something like the mental. But the problem there is that for the naturalists to be able to use the specific facts, they actually have to use the evidence for theism to then give them evidence for naturalism. Now, what mm-hmm. I mean by that is they have to look at all the general facts that theism would use, such as consciousness, embodied moral agents, orderly complex universe, and then they have to take those general facts and then they have to zoom in on those general facts and they go, wait a minute, but consciousness is connected to brains And that is something that is more expected on naturalism, right? And so the problem is, it's like, okay, wait a minute. How do both theories have evidence for one another when the naturalist has to use the general facts of theism to derive the specific facts and have them be for naturalism? Because the general facts of theism are composed of specific facts. So either theism Mm. has no evidence and naturalism has all the evidence. And that's just ludicrous to me that that's actually how the debate would go so yeah yeah i was
2: gonna say tim like um because with like time and stuff like do you have like looking at this uh um, moving forward like do you have like a preferred like theodicy or defense you're kind of like building towards when looking at like, yeah, the problem yeah, yeah. Of, like Sorry, there's, there's
1: just so much to no I groundwork to put under this so we have a proper way to think about it so anyway mm-hmm. i was just going to end with theism and naturalism should be lo- relying on general facts and i think theological evils Evolutionary evils is a general enough of a fact that they can uh, use. So, anyways, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So I think that theism can account for its anomalies, and doing so in a way that doesn't uh, completely destroy its priors and actually makes it more probable. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that a great paper for us all to read is um, the Rasmussen and Westling paper yeah. on um, a called a randomness-based theodicy for evolutionary evils. Um where they basically jot down three different um, aspects or features of uh, randomness that actually um, are value conducive. Because God will only um, instantiate things in reality. that God will only choose a world ensemble to actualize, uh, given its degree of value. So if one if C has more value than B, then he'll actualize C. Um, And what they're saying is that a a world with a high degree of randomness, this chanciness, subjective chance, is actually something that can instantiate lots of value. And so I honestly call it something like a cosmic soul building, that Mm. when God goes to create, God would prefer to create on the basis of value, a creation that unfolds largely on its own that is semi-autonomous. Why? Well, we have so many, we have, uh, I think, plausible reasons given theism as to why God would create such a system. And that system, the value of that system is the fact that if God creates a creation that can create, basically create on its own, that is semi-autonomous, according and, and obeying God's rules, it's as if God is letting creation participate in the overall God narrative narrative of creation itself which is a beautiful picture god is in relationship with creation because it's participating in creating as well mm-hmm. and so we what we have as well is we have this theme this pattern of the universe moving towards more of an enhanced state we have many more beautiful complex structures and it revolts and it, it results in something like a, a complex beautiful universe where, you know, when you zoom out and you look at galaxies, you look at the way that different stars and galaxies are interacting with it, it almost paints like this big painting. Right. Um, and God would see that that has lots of value because it's creation is able to instantiate many things. Um, and basically able to basically play almost, Mm -hmm. and that results in animals that results in animals. that are able to go under, uh, under evolution. Um, But because it is connected to the cosmic processes, there is a unity among all creatures, that all creatures share um, this large um, biological web, usually called the tree of life, but biologists are moving towards usually calling it a web. And we are able to relate in a very intimate way to all the animals before us, but we actually stand on the backs of those animals that our existence is owed to their existence and that they've actually been able to serve in God's overall plan and narrative for bringing us here. And so we actually have a unity with all animals on the the planet. We actually have unity with the stars because we are made of the same elements. And this is something great because God is basically ordering an ensemble to be holistically united. And this is something that can only come about if there is a sophisticated interplay of law and chance. And so I think that that gives us good reasons to think that God would instantiate a world ensemble with a randomness-based semi-autonomous creation. So another part is, well, then you say, okay, well then, is that enough? To um, what about the cost of suffering of all these different animals? Animals are still suffering. You know, is it more valuable to have this at the cost of all this suffering? And so this is where Trent Doherty comes in. And I think Trent Doherty and that, I, who else, Zach, uh, takes Doherty? Um, John
2: Schneider has a good book that's similar. Um, it interacts with Doherty's work. It just came out like a year or two ago, but Doherty Doherty's the big one.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so Doherty has a book called The Problem of Animal Pain*. It's the best book I've read on the subject. I think that is all on the subject. And um, he says that he extends the Irenaean soul-building theodicy, building upon Hick as well, to animals themselves and that like what Joe is talking about. Like when you have this pig, and the and this pig is it's just suffers, right? It doesn't say, oh, you know, I did this suffering because it built my character like you and I would, but then the pig just suffers and it dies. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this kind of implicit assumption that, well, animals can't soul build, they, they don't have the cognitive faculties that human beings have, the um, where they have this higher order existential moral reasoning to do so. So what Doherty puts forth is that. Yes, animals can soul build, but it doesn't necessarily have to happen in this life, in the earthly phase of life, that because God is perfectly good, God is going to have to do certain things because God is perfectly good. And one of those things that just follows from perfect goodness is that God's going to create creatures that he loves and that suffers. God is going to have to compensate them for their suffering. And so same thing with animals. God loves the animals, people then God is going to have to compensate them for their suffering. And so in the afterlife for these animals, the idea is that that's when they can undergo soul building. But in the way that they undergo their own soul building is because God will then, um, it is like what's articulated in the orthodox doctrine of theosis, uh, the doctrine of deification. That in the end, in the eschaton, we will be made, Uh, Divine, And so animals will be given these deified forms. Well, their rationality will be raised to that of humans or higher, where then they can finally see what their place is in the entire narrative and plan of God. And they can finally make sense of their suffering. And they can finally see from the beginning to the end exactly um, how um, they their existence contributed to God's overall plan and where they sit. And then they have a choice of whether or not they want to accept, um, God in that or not. Yeah. And so they're able to see the love of God and things. And because it's afterlife and eternity, um, these animals will then be able to overcome in a more fundamental reality, the suffering that happened on this earth. Mm-hmm. And so Doherty says that it might sound a little strange, But he thinks that this is actually, I do too, that this is actually what must happen given the nature of perfect love, given Mm. perfect being theism. And so um, because animals were able to serve creation and do these different things, God compensates them for their existence. And yes, they are are moral patients. Uh, They are are not moral moral agents, but they will be made to that in their deified forms, like us. Um, and they'll be able to make sense of that. And so I think that these are non-ad hoc. These are not just reasons that we are pulling out trying to save theism. But actually, as you think of it, these are very much hidden consequences of perfect being theism. And if you're familiar with Swinburne and his work, um, the, the Swinburnian way of, of parsing out the different commitments and consequences of theism, um, I think that these follow too. And so at the end of the day, I think that... Um, these don't present disconfirmations, they present themselves as anomalies. But theists have the innate resources in their theoretical framework to answer the anomalies in the same way that evolutionary biologists and evolutionary theory are able to account for their anomalies, too.
2: Mm, that's super good. And I'll just add on like Schneider's proposal because he ends up rejecting um, this book came out a couple years ago, so like the Darwinian problem of evil came out a couple years ago. And he talks about um, he rejects Dowdy's idea, but he says something like uh, similar to a way that like. Um, a dog can learn to like accept praise, you know, when he did something good, um, potentially like animals in the Eschaton, uh, could be resurrected and maybe not have the cognitive abilities to like, um, become like moral agents, but they can like reflect on their suffering in a sense of like knowing that like. Not without having like that direct, cap, like a super like powerful capacity, but like to some degree knowing that like some, like they did something good, they contributed to like creating like a better story, or their suffering had some purpose. Things, talk, things Tim was talking about earlier. Sorry, I can't talk. It's getting late for me. Um, but yeah, so we'll get into this last clip, Tim. Um, yeah, so good stuff.
0: On um, theism, by contrast, it doesn't seem nearly as surprising on a view where fundamental reality is just indifferent to the flourishing and languishing of, of creatures. Uh, fundamental reality doesn't give a damn whether the pig is, is suffering really, um, or whether there's this protected process. Uh, it just seems much more fitting in a worldview where um, there isn't such providential governance and direction from an omnibenevolent being. Um, so yeah, that, that's probably the best argument for atheism by my lights
2: okay so lots of great stuff i'll give my kind of final thoughts to yeah Tim, go ahead and man I'll give i've a, been talking you know, a lot do it <laughs> yeah i'm just gonna like kind of like reflect on some things basically you were saying because i mean you know a lot more about this than i do which is why i invited you on so um but yeah so like when i reflect on this so when we're looking at like the problem of like um animal suffering especially in light of like a very old earth millions of years of animal predation and whatnot i think there's two questions so one we're looking at like first like the mechanisms and like Does that support like theism or atheism? So, like, if you accept evolution, which I mean, I'm agnostic about it, but like, for the sake of this debate, like, I'm totally fine with like granting it. Like, so you look at the mechanisms and you have like facts like convergence or like the law like nature of evolution. Um, It seems like these things are super surprising if the foundation is like indifferent. Um, And so, something like an atheism or naturalism, but like, these facts would not nearly be as surprising on theism. So, like, that might be an advantage for theism. Then we look at the problem of like the suffering Um, and like, maybe you want to say like, yeah, like Tim's theodicy suck. Um, But then, then we're kind of left with like, well, potentially like maybe like the biology supports theism and uh, the suffering supports atheism. Then we're kind of at a wash and like, this is potentially like one of the better arguments. But even if you're like potentially like moved by some of like the theistic um, defenses or theodicies, like I do, like I don't think Tim's arguments suck at all. So um, then potentially you're looking at something that like provide more weight for theism. Um, So like, you look at like the nature of like evolutionary evil, like I don't, like when you look at the whole picture, I don't even know if I'd say if it's evidence against God anymore. I mean, sometimes I, I don't know. It depends and like what you're building into your hypothesis of like naturalism or indifference or things like that. But mm-hmm. yeah, there's a lot of things at play here. So what may seem initially implausible on in theism, I don't think is actually that implausible.
1: Yeah, and I want to say that like this is not an exercise in trying to make sure that we say that naturalism has no evidence, but rather mm-hmm. that, you know, when we start to look at these things, um, we're going to have anomalies on these theories, and if you look at the nature of uh, paradigms uh, in science, uh, there's actually a really good book, uh, I think by um, Kuhn, Thomas Kuhn, yeah, on um, on how paradigm shifts happen in science, uh, is really good to, to to view these things as uh, these progressive research programs, really, and I think that theism is a healthy progressive research program in that in how it is flexible enough to account for things that are considered just not predicted on the theory. Now I want to say that when it comes to evils, I, this is one thing I forgot to say is that naturalism doesn't make them actually all that likely. It just prima facie makes it more likely than theism. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that naturalism doesn't predict that you would have uh conscious agents suffering. Um it doesn't have those resources given that your foundation is impersonal and is indifferent and that datum is necessarily um something that is a uh, is um something that is of value um and something that is uh resembles features of uh of being of personhood and things of that sort and mindedness so mm-hmm. naturalism doesn't make it actually all that likely. So if theism is able to rely on its resources, theism can actually make the suffering that happens in the evolutionary, that that happens in the evolutionary time, that happens in the biosphere, actually quite, actually much more considerably likely than naturalism. Mm. Um, So yeah, and again, like I'm kind of looking through these comments a little bit. And again, like um, I, uh, I, completely like support and like agree with evolution um, it's my i think it's my, actually my favorite science to study um, i'm a layman but in my own spare time i study it um, and i don't and i think it's that it's the um it's the only theoretical contender we have for explaining um mm-hmm. uh the, the diversity of life um mm-hmm. that we see exhibited in the biosphere um, and that's precisely why i um i agree with doherty and proofs that theism is a lot like evolution in the way that it addresses its so-called anomalies. Um, yeah. So, um, and it's cool because evolution is um, is there's this kind of tug of war within the uh, the field itself against whether or not it needs a rethink. You know, Pigliucci and those things, or an extended synthesis. I even have the book, or whatnot, oh. or and things, or whether or not we need to add these new 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 things in um, molecular genetics and genomics and file. Phy- uh, uh, all these different things in. And it's the same way that theism responds to suffering. So I uh, yeah, just want to leave that there. Yeah. Well, Tim, thank you so much for coming on. And I'm sorry for rushing you towards
2: the end. Um, there's so much to talk about here. So it's been so much fun. And you can check out Tim's channel at Invoking Theism below. um Big shout out to Joe. Like, Joe produces a lot of great content. And yeah, always great stuff to listen to. Joe and Tim are both added in the description. So you can check them both out. Um, But yeah, Tim, do you have any kind of like last thoughts or things you get to say? I mean, obviously, there's probably a lot you didn't get to say. So my apologies. I hope you can forgive me from the bottom of your heart. Um, But like anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up here?
1: Yeah, there's just this one comment at the end that I actually think is really cool, good to respond to I'll respond to it pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't all potential states of affairs have the same probability given naturalism? I don't see how naturalism can't account for teleology. Correct me if I'm wrong. So the answer is not that it can't account for teleology. It's that does it make the facts of teleology expected or probable or
2: Hmm.
1: because we're doing a hypothesis comparison. So does it make it more probable than theism? And the problem with naturalism is that, you know, ask like what are the selection pressures on a naturalist's foundation um, that that when you look at all the infinite world ensembles that could possibly, all the different possible worlds that could possibly be instantiated, what on a naturalistic foundation, where is selection pressures that allow it to, you know, choose universe C over universe Z? Right. On theism, mm-hmm. it's that one of them is going to have more value than the other, since God is a mind and responds to value. But on naturalism, um, the, all these universes are inscrutable when it comes to their probability. Um, it is it is left up to pure chance as to what which world ensemble comes about. So there is no saying that a particular world ensemble is more expected than the other on naturalism because, well, um, indifference and in personhood just doesn't give you anything to expect. And so for me on naturalism, I actually think that um, the most non-arbitrary worlds um, that it can possibly instantiate it will either be empty worlds or worlds where there's like a, like, there's just no life, no interesting things going on, like no large scale universe. Like that is very much concords and is congruent with indifference. Mm-hmm. Um, a universe like ours um, has a lot of difference going on. It has a lot of um, consciousness, more moral agents um, uh, the, uh, that we can recognize beauty um, uh, being able to reason, um, and all these different facts. Um, so, um, that's all I want to say there. It has a a problem with selecting worlds.
2: That's great. Well, thank you, Tim, so much. And yeah, big shout out to Joe and everyone else you tuned in and have a good one. And yeah, God bless.